uh, pretty busy yesterday. And when that happens, typically our services get a, a little bit fuller as well. So if you are visiting, we're, we're thankful to have you. Uh, we appreciate having people come and take time out of their schedule to not ski and actually worship Jesus. So uh, we appreciate that deeply. So thank you for being here. And then, of course, if you're a regular, we, we appreciate you and thank you for, for continuing to come and support our ministry here and all the things that, that we do. Um, and uh, if, if you don't have a Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to raise your hand, and one of the ushers will hand you a Bible. And we're going to be in James chapter 5. Uh, and so you can turn there if you do have your Bible, or if you have one of those digital Bibles, you can turn there as well. Uh, you know, it's interesting, I've kind of mocked the digital Bible a little bit, but I've heard people uh, share how, how they have appreciated it so they can enlarge their font. That's a particular age group that's doing that. Um, but uh, it's interesting to hear that age group say, man, I really uh, am glad for the digital Bible so I can see it and read it. And we want to encourage seeing it and reading it. <clears throat> I want to mention a couple things as we dive in, uh, before we dive in. One is uh, we have a trip coming up uh, to Mexico, and we're doing a burrito feed for that trip to Mexico on the 3rd, and we're looking to raise funds for that missions trip. We have a lot of people going. It's a tremendous team that's going down there to serve alongside Travis and Amber Owen uh, with So Ministries, and what, what they're doing is basically assisting those who are orphaned uh, and, and those who are run orphanages down there. And, and eventually, um, Travis and Amber opening up their own orphanage in Mexico for the age group between zero and three years old. So it's a big undertaking, and we get to go down there, and we get to serve them, and we get to help them and love on people, love on specifically young kids who don't have parents, and to show them the love of Jesus Christ. And so um, we, we are looking for help with that. Uh, one of the ways, obviously, is financial. If you want to give to that, just write uh, in the memo that it's for the missions trip or put uh, on, the, uh, on your offering envelope that that's what that's for. And then in addition to everything else that, that uh, uh, Brad Beer shared with you, I, I enjoyed his announcement and uh, letting you know that if you wanted to help out with nursery, the only requirement was to not kill a child. So um, there's good news to that. Some of you will sign, sign up and some of you will stop sending your kids to nursery so we won't need as many helpers. Uh, so appreciate that. <clears throat> um, but in addition to all of that, uh, we have a, a sign-up booth for kids, not a sign-up booth, a check-in booth for kids outside uh, where kids and their parents check their kids in. You get a little sticker and everything. We're looking for volunteers to join that team as well. Uh, and, and if you want more information on that, you can do that at the info booth. You can see Kathy. This is Kathy right here. Kathy, raise your hand. And um, basically all you got to do is, is, is welcome parents and and uh, help them check in uh, in a real easy way on the iPads that we have out there. Now, one of the questions that I've been asked uh, over the last uh, year or so, year and a half or so, we've put a lot of energy and time into our children's program uh, over the last year and a half. Not that we didn't do that before, uh, but we've had some changes that were out of our control. We ended up uh, bringing on a new guy on staff, and Joe uh, Casey and his wife, Abby, who works with him over there as our children's directors now, and just a lot of effort put in over there. And I, w I want you to know why uh, so you can understand. First of all, our vision is uh, to make disciples of all people. So obviously we do that here on Sunday morning. We do that through small groups. We have community groups. We have all kinds of things you can partake in. But one of the largest growing segments of our family, uh, of our, uh, our church family, is families. Uh, and so with that said, we know that that's the future, and we want to pour into that. In fact, uh, just this week, we had two brand new births in our church. John uh, and Sam Amon, John, uh, our youth pastor, they just had their baby boy, Riker. 
Uh, and then uh, Lisa and Billy uh, Haley, they just had their little baby girl, Everly. And so we're adding to the church, uh, not only through, you know, sharing the gospel, but through making babies, which is great. And um, in addition to that, one of the things that that we teach, I'm going to geek out on you a little bit, uh, just for the way my mind works and the things that I enjoy. I'm going to use words that you don't use too often. One of the things they say a good pastor should do is exegete scripture. And that's what we attempt to do uh, on Sunday mornings and, and any good pastor would do in studying the Bible. To exegete scripture literally just means you're trying to find out the original meaning of scripture, what it originally meant to the people it was written to, and then you study it, you pull it open, you find out what it says, and then you teach that, and then hopefully you have some application for us. And they say a good uh, pastor that also understands his community doesn't only exegete scripture, but also exegetes its culture that it's in. What that means is we're trying to understand culture, where it's at, speak into that culture in a way that, that, that people see that God is for all people, that he is not an old-time message and what have you. With that said, uh, it was shared with me by one of our elders. Actually, it was uh, Brad Beers who was just up here. He works with the school. And enrollment for the schools in our area, you can correct me on these statistics if I have any of them broken, Brad, but enrollment for all of our schools in our area is, is going up, uh, which is just an interesting thing to think about. It's expensive to live here, and yet more and more families are coming, and more and more kids are coming, and it actually is one of the largest growing segments here in Truckee, California. So with that said, we recognize we need to be putting time and energy into that as people come into the area. Is that about correct, Brad? Okay, sounds good. Thanks. <clears throat> He's so nice to me. He never tries to make me feel dumb or anything. So, um, All right. With that said, we have a tradition at SBC. If you have the ability to do so this morning, I want to encourage you to stand with me as we honor God's word and read it together. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 this morning. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also... Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. An example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Lord, we ask your word to be true to us, to Lord, Lord, through the, the preaching of the word, that you would stand true and beautiful, that we would find you to be worthy of our worship and our attention. Take away distraction and teach us what it is that you want to share with us this morning. In Jesus' name, the church said... Amen. You may be seated. There's a shift in this passage from last week. Last week, Wayne preached, and when he preached, he talked about the rich and, and how the rich uh, or those with money can make money kind of a, a god, an idol, something to worship. Uh, part of the context of that particular segment is that the rich were actually oppressing those who were poor. And what James is doing in this particular segment is he, he is actually shifting his focus from the oppressors to the oppressed. Specifically, the rich are, are kind of crushing, belittling, looking down on those who are 
poor, and so now he understands that there are, there's another group of people who sit under that, that they are oppressed. What James is, in effect, doing is he's, he's still continuing to attach his teaching to the beginning of James in chapter 1, where he talks about trials and tribulations. And he tells us in that particular segment of teaching that there are trials of various kinds. Uh, if you are here this morning and you are a human being, it is my guess that you have encountered a trial of some various kind. Amen? And, and then this, in the passage we see this morning, which is the title of the message, is you are called to have patience and suffering. So James is going to teach us, as he did in chapter 1, what it means to suffer well, what it means to be oppressed, what it means to be oppressed and to worship God in a way that is glorifying. Now, we know that there are trials of different kinds. There are three we categorized uh, a couple months ago. One is physical there is in our world, in our fallen world, pain, disease, addiction, persecution, financial temptation, all kinds of things that the world brings in regards to physical suffering. And some of you in the church are experiencing this or know someone that is experiencing this. In fact, right now we're in a season in our church where there are several people who, who are in the hospital, several that are sick, several that we should be praying for. Sue Salas is one of them, as Al has been praying over him. Brad Franklin's not here this morning because he's sick and at home. Natalie Tesco is also not feeling well. She just got released from the hospital. My own grandfather uh, had a, uh, uh, an infection that he was dealing with. And several of you, even in the room, you know that there is some suffering you were dealing with. This is the kind of thing James is speaking into, a physical kind of suffering. There's also a mental kind of suffering. Not only do we suffer from physical ailments, but also within our minds. These things include depression, anxiety, disappointment, fear, different kinds of heartaches, distractions, emotions that go way too up or way too uh, down, nervous breakdowns, stress, those kind of things. Then, of course, we don't want to forget that there's a spiritual kind of warfare that we suffer as well. Physical, mental, and spiritual. All of these things Second Peter calls fiery trials different kind of trials. And the Bible speaks to this throughout all of Scripture. It, it doesn't ignore the reality that there is suffering, suffering in the world. In fact, it's kind of disappointing when some churches just ignore this reality altogether. To ignore the reality of suffering is to ignore the reality that sin exists in our culture, that sin is something that actually occurs, and that sin has its negative effects upon society and upon oneself. In fact, Job's friends uh, said to Job while he was suffering, man is born to trouble just as sparks are born to fly upward. John sixteen thirty three, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, he says, for the Lord himself has overcome the world. Paul to the new Christians in Galatia in Acts chapter 14, right after these Christians become Christians, listen to what he says to them. When they had preached the gospel of that city, and he had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And he said to them, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. How many tribulations? Many. many. Okay, so uh, all that to be said, right? The great joy this morning, the great reality this morning is that suffering exists. Suffering is real. You, you can't ignore it. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. And the, the worst thing you can do is enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and think that because you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ that somehow you won't suffer because the Bible teaches the opposite. It actually says that when you become a Christian, you may encounter more kinds of suffering, that the world is going to hate you, that Satan's going to be opposed to you. 
And in the church, if you, if you say to yourself, I want to be in ministry, like our young man up here who sang this morning, you're actually opening yourself up to a whole other kind of spiritual trial and tribulation. I can tell you as a pastor that there are times when you just can't explain what you're feeling or going through. It's just the enemy is attacking. I know I'm speaking fast in that regard. However, it's important for us to know as a church that suffering, going through tribulation, going through trial, going through hardship, doesn't mean that God is not happy with you. It doesn't mean that God hates you. In fact, Paul says that the sufferings of the world are, are nothing compared to the great glory of God. <clears throat> what he's teaching in this, and we'll, we'll talk about this here in a moment, is that suffering, if you look at it through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Jesus Christ, is very, 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 very temporary. More on that here in a moment. So James is actually teaching us, along with chapter 1 earlier, he's saying that your response to trials, your response to tribulation, your response to suffering reveals, it reveals your Christianity. When you go through something hard, what happens is, is what you actually believe in Jesus Christ will be revealed. As one pastor said, some get bitter, some get better. And so as you're going through a trial, you'll see where is your true faith. Hardships prove whether or not you really believe in Jesus Christ. And I've seen this over the years. I've seen people who've come to the faith in Jesus Christ. They enjoy that walk with the Lord. Everything's going fine. Everything's going great. Jesus is awesome. Church attendance is up. Giving is up. Serving is up. All of these things are up. Everything looks great and good. And then something negative happens, and they turn away from the faith. They stop coming to church, they stop giving, they stop serving, they stop praying, they stop diving into a relationship with God. And then others, others, it actually increases. All of those things are up, all of those things are doing well, all the spiritual markers that we look for in a mature Christian, they go through suffering, and the result is they actually serve more, they give more, and I dare say their joy even increases. So here's one of James's fears. The first fear is that you would retaliate. Remember now, the context is, to a degree, the rich are oppressing. The rich are oppressing the poor. You could say that the wealthy, the wealthy non-Christians are, are to, in effect, pressing in against the non-wealthy or poverty-stricken Christians. Because most of the Christians, when they got saved at this time, most of them, not all, but most of them were poor. You had kind of two groups of people in first century Christianity that were getting saved. It was the poor it was the broken, it was the downtrodden, it was the suffering. And then you would have, on occasion, you'd have wealthy people who got saved. It was really interesting how God worked this out. And what they would end up doing, those who were wealthy, when they got saved, they ended up opening up their homes. And you know what their homes became? Churches. And so you had wealthy people opening up their homes for poor people to come in and make their home dirty to worship Jesus Christ, which is pretty neat, I think. And so that's, that's kind of what's happening. He's saying, okay, listen, you're being oppressed. Don't retaliate. James chapter 5, verse 6. Notice what it says. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He's speaking to the rich. He's speaking to the oppressor. And he's saying, this is what you've done in verse 6. You've condemned, you've condemned them, and you've murdered them. And then what is the response, James says in verse 6? He does not resist you. Do you notice it? The response of, of the righteous person is there's no, there's no resistance. Now, this is really, really quite amazing. If you look at Christianity and you look at the call of Christianity in regards to persecution, it, this is going to blow some of your minds a little bit. Some of you might disagree with it. 
but I tell you the Bible is true. And if you disagree with the Bible, it's because you're wrong, right? So, so when Christians are persecuted, you will not find a call to Christianity to picket, to riot, to go up to the government fences, to shake your fist, and to yell, and to scream. That's not what you find. You know what you find when the government starts persecuting Christianity in the New Testament? They don't resist. They preach the gospel. They go to prison. They get persecuted in prison. They get beaten in prison, and they keep preaching the gospel. So the response for Christianity, for us, we don't riot. We don't yell. We don't scream. We preach the love of Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to do. So James saying, listen, if you're being persecuted, if you're going through suffering, don't resist it. Keep preaching the goodness of Jesus Christ. Keep telling people who Jesus is. Don't stop doing that. 1 Peter 2.23, in regards to our Savior, when he was reviled, what did he do? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die in sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds we have been healed. First response that you should have is to not retaliate. When someone persecutes you, one of the things that comes into my mind, right, when I get cut off in the freeway, is I say, vengeance is the Lord's. <laughs> There's nothing, have you ever done this? This is really wrong of me to confess. Have you ever done this when somebody's cut you off when it's rainy like this? They pass you when there's snow? Or some, some person who, who says to themselves, I've got studded tires, I've got four-wheel drive, I can go 65 miles an hour in said conditions. You know those people? Some of you are those people, and you need to repent. <laughs> and I, <laughs> what I do in my mind is I go, man, I'm, I, this is so wrong. I'm hoping that like in a half mile or so, I'll see them like off in a ditch. Be like, man, see, vengeance is the Lord's. You should not drive like that. <clears throat> Don't retaliate. You have to check your heart in those moments. The second thing that James says is he says this. Um, here it is. Nope, that's not it. Give me a minute. He says this, be patient and wait. In the text, you see it a couple different times. It, it uses the word patience. Patience is defined, I have a definition before you here, as the spirit of serenity, a spirit of quietness under any circumstance, a spirit of fixedness and firmness and steadfastness that characterizes your life. What James is doing here is he's warning us against a spirit of restlessness, a spirit of irritability, a spirit of always complaining, always being unhappy, always being upset with the way things are and the way that people are treating you. So when he says, listen, you, when you go through suffering, James is saying there's a way to go through suffering, there's a way to go through trial, there's a way to go through tribulation that actually, actually can bring serenity in your life, a spirit of quietness in your life. And we're going to talk about here in a moment, the job right now for me is not to bring anything practical to you yet. We're going to get there in a moment. My job right now is to give you the commandment of what God is calling us to do, which is impossible without him. One is not to retaliate. Vengeance is not yours. And the other one is to just be patient in the situation. To say, okay, listen, Lord, like, this is really difficult. In fact, I texted uh, Ryan Binti yesterday. Some of you don't know Ryan, but he's one of our deacons. And he was playing hockey, and, and he broke his hip playing hockey. And so he had to have surgery. It was a pretty, pretty gnarly break. 
And I texted him yesterday and just said, hey, man, praying for you. How you doing? You healing up? And he said, he texted me back, which is a very normal response for someone going through something like that, that he's, he's basically frustrated. Because you're talking about a guy who's active. You're talking about a guy who works hard. You're talking about a guy who wants to provide for his family. And God, in his sovereignty, has saw fit to place him in a bed or a couch or a chair and to sit. Now, are there any men in the room this morning that that is like your worst nightmare? Some of you are like, that sounds like heaven. I'm going to sign up for hockey. See what happens. And I told him, keep plugging away, man. Keep trusting the Lord. God's put him in a place where, where in that situation, even those who are in the hospital right now, be patient in the situation. Uh, my wife's here. She always tells my children the definition of patience. What's the definition of patience? that you give our children at the breakfast table or the dinner table? <laughs> There's a lot in there. To wait cheerfully, expecting good to happen. You tell a four-year-old that, it doesn't compute. I'm just going to tell you right now. <laughs> but the funny thing is you tell a 50-year-old that or a 40-year-old that or a 20-something-year-old that, and it's hard for us to understand that as well. When you're waiting in line to ha- for anything to be cheerful, because we live in a day and age of right nowness, right? Everything's right now. In fact, I get frustrated when I order something on Amazon and it takes more than two days. It's Prime, man. I'm paying for Prime. It takes two days. And then I look it up and it says on there, it says unexpected delay, storm, or some other circumstance, to which I say, hogwash. Where's my package? It's been two days right? And, and to think for a moment that somehow you can get a piece of furniture to put in your room in two days is actually quite amazing. In fact, in fact, you right now have the ability to fact check anything I say and, and ask your phone a question, send said question to outer space and get a response within less than 30 seconds. And if you don't get said response in 30 seconds, you're clicking your phone going, is it broken? Is there something wrong? What's happening? And immediacy whether it's fast food, whether it's something on the internet, we want it now, we want it now, we want it now. And the Bible is actually pushing against the opposite. And he's telling us you must be patient. You need to be kind. You need to be loving. And especially what James is talking about, which is a great teaching point for us this morning, when he says for us to be patient and to wait, he's specifically speaking not to just people who are easy to be patient with, but specifically to difficult people. Specifically here in the context, it's the rich. Can't tell you how many times I've heard the rumor of, of those in the area in the community who have requested at Safeway to have their own special line at Safeway so that they can get in and out. Or those who have the ability to, to get to the front of a line or have their own lift to a said resort or whatever it might be. It's easy for us, who, who especially those of us who, who are the working folk of Truckee, California, to look at the other group that live in Truckee, California and compare ourselves to that lifestyle and say, wait a minute. They're changing the community. They're making things difficult. They're making it harder to live here. Why? We need, to, we need to do something about this. And the Bible's command, for those of you who are the working folk in Truckee, California, be patient specifically with difficult people. Do you know, I know, I know, I know, for those of us who are working folk, it's hard to believe. Jesus also loves rich people. He does. And because they have a purpose in God's kingdom. Remember what I talked about in first century? Some of them opened up their homes. And, and so again, the response, the response is don't retaliate. Be patient. That's number two. And number three, especially, or part of number two, especially with difficult people. 
But James adds to that. He says in verse 9, <clears throat> do not grumble. So you've got two, if, if you're asking me, very difficult commands. One, you've got to be patient. Cheerfully wait. Number two, don't complain. Now, again, our, our, culture, our culture says, it says, get it now, have it now. It's all about immediacy. But it also is a culture of, of grumbling and complaining, is it not? I mean, I, think, I almost think at this point that's exactly what social media was designed for. Not to actually connect with people, but just to complain. It's just somewhere to put your thoughts. I, I in fact, on the, uh, the Truckee Tahoe page on Facebook, every now and then, I get lost on an article that says something like, like, hey, um, this is what's happening in the community, and there's like 200 comments, and I just read the 200 comments. And out of the 200 comments, like 98% of them are negative. There's not one person on there going, man, praise the Lord for this. This is great. Glad our community is doing something to, to, to change. This is, this is amazing. No, it's, it's just complaining, 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 complaining to the point where many people don't go to Facebook anymore. They go to Instagram because it's harder to complain in a picture. But the Bible's commandment in these things is to not complain and grumble. See, complaining and grumble expresses dissatisfaction or annoyance about something. What it is when you complain is you're actually being completely self-absorbed. What makes you complain is somehow you feel offended. Normally when we complain, we're not complaining on the behalf of another. We're complaining on behalf of ourselves. That somehow, some way, we're not first. Our needs are not being met. And what James is saying, he's saying, you've got to put your needs off to the side. Put them away. What C.S. Lewis calls this when he talks about self-absorption and complaining, C.S. Lewis, great Christian author, great, great storyteller. He says, when you, when you are complaining in this way, he calls it, you're actually being part of what's called an endless autobiography. That life is all about you. And then what C.S. Lewis adds to that, he says, not only is it your endless autobiography, he says, this is actually the definition of hell itself. He says, this is what it's like to be in hell. Just completely self-absorbed. Now, let me give you part of why we shouldn't complain and grumble according, according to James. James says, someone's standing at the door. There's a judge, he says, and he's standing at the door. He's right there in the room. It's James telling us that, there's a, that God is omnipresent. He's actually in the moment. And so what he's saying is he's saying, now you've got to imagine yourself. You're being completely self-absorbed. You're complaining in your trial and your tribulation. Why me? Why am I going through the suffering? How come this is happening? Did I do something wrong? You're totally absorbed. And he's saying, Jesus, who's the judge, in the text, he says he's standing at the door. And what James is saying is you have to be mindful of this. Jesus is standing at the door. Why is this important? Because no one has suffered more persecution, more suffering, more mocking, and more disdain than the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? No one has experienced at that, at that level. Scripture tells us that while Jesus was being crucified, his beard was being plucked from his face. That he was beaten, it says in the Old Testament, beyond recognition of a man. That he was not only beaten, but he was mocked upon. They, they put the crown of thorns on his head to mock him as the king of the Jews. They spit upon him. At one point, the Bible tells us they put a bag over his head, and they hit him, 
And as they hit him, they demanded of him to prophesy of which soldier hit him in that moment. Prophesy now. Who hit you? You're the Messiah. You're the one with all these great powers. Who hit you? Who hit you? No one has experienced anything like that. Nothing like that. There's no human in all of history who has gone through what Jesus has gone through. None, none of us. So, so the next time we go through suffering, next time we go through pain, we have to be careful about complaining and not being patient. We have to look to Jesus and say, whoa, I've never gone to that point. And then Jesus, Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us that in that moment, it says he was like a lamb before his shears. He was silent. He didn't say anything. What a contrast to some of us in our suffering, yeah? And so he says, listen, James says, listen, you don't complain, you don't grumble. Why? There's a judge. He's standing at the door. Good news for us this morning. Not only, not only is he present in that moment, he's present right now. Like for those of you, for those of you who have been walking with Christ long enough, you were able to sense a, 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 a just a presence that God is in the room. And that he cares for you individually. The best part of Christianity is when you feel as if, as if God, who is in Christ, as if, as if you are the apple of his eye. You're it. You're like the only one he loves. You're the only one he cares for. And yet he has the ability to make everyone in the room feel that way at the same time. Isn't that neat? <clears throat> so, the warning. Be patient. And he's telling us something that's very interesting. If, if you ever notice, when you complain... When you complain, you're not actually complaining against a person or against the institution. You're actually complaining to God about God. Do you remember in Genesis? Right? It's all perfect. You've got, you've got Adam who had the perfect body, no belly button, right? Just a good-looking dude in a good-looking garden who then receives a good-looking woman without a belly button as well. Created from the rib of man, they're equals, and they are in bliss. I mean, they are so unashamed that they're running around the garden completely naked. That, and that just, that just lets you know how good the weather was in the garden too, right? It's just beautiful all the time. And, and then all of a sudden, they sin. And Eve takes a bite of the apple. We're not told what Adam's doing. We just know he's probably off to the side being passive. And then when God finds them out, God approaches them and, and tells, what have you done? You've, you've eaten. I know you have. I know you've done this thing. And Adam's response is priceless, is it not? Lord, it was the woman. Men have been blaming their wives from the beginning of the world. But then, but then he adds to it. It was the woman what? That you gave me. Essentially what he's saying is this wouldn't have happened had you not given me this woman. This is actually your fault, Lord. You know, anytime when you understand the sovereignty of God, that God allows good and bad things to happen to us. It's true. He does. To ignore that is to ignore the fact that God is, not, is as if God's somehow not in control of everything. He doesn't actively make it happen, but he allows certain bad things to happen. And of course, the, the first answer everyone gives is, why would a good God do that? Because he's got good reasons for it. Just because you can't see the good reasons doesn't mean it's not happening for a good reason. Your mind is finite. You can't see all the implications of everything happening, but God can. So when you surrender to the sovereignty of God, what you're essentially saying is, God, you know well. You know better than me. So to use Ryan again as an example, don't tell him I did this this morning. He's at home right now. Oh, he's here next service? Okay. Well, I'll use someone else in the second service. 
it's easy to complain. It's easy to grumble. Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Why are these things? Why, Lord? Like, God, and instead going, Lord, like, I'm going to be patient in this. There's a reason that you've allowed my hip to have this particular issue. And, and, and here, here, here we go. What allows you to get to this place where you're not complaining against God, you're not complaining against people, you're actually patient, you're actually long-suffering, and you're, to a degree, there's joy in your suffering. Uh, now, let me, let me share with you just, you know, personally, some of you know my story. And you know that, that the way I grew up, wasn't, it was not easy growing up. My parents were not Christians. There were a lot of drugs and alcohol. I still to this day remember, remember when my biological father shot his girlfriend in the face here in Truckee, California. And I had to go to school the next day wondering what kids, what parents, and what teachers knew that I was related to that man. Hard for me to live with. And to say that those things haven't had some kind of negative effect in my life even today as an adult would be a lie. Our suffering to some degree molds us and shapes us and gives us, gives us certain things that make us good at certain things, makes us strong, but also gives us certain insecurities. Both exist in my life. So when I say these things, I'm not coming from a place of not having suffered myself, knowing that there's also more days of suffering ahead. And so there is a way to have joy in it and to see that God is in it. How do we do that? Here's James, one of James' first commandments in verses 7 and 8. He mentions it a couple different times. I've got four for us this morning. Here's the first one. Consider the day of the Lord is coming. Consider the day of the Lord is coming. James' teaching is, listen, you want to have patience? Then you have to, you, want, you, gotta, you gotta remember, you gotta remind yourself of the great hope that we have. Jesus' second coming. Another quote here says, the more persecuted a church is, the more eagerly it anticipates the return of Jesus Christ. Conversely, an, inf- an, a, an affluent, indulgent, worldly church has little interest in the Lord's return. Here's the concern for the American church. This is the concern for the American church. What, what, I don't know how much money you make, but it's more than most people in the world. And what this particular commentator states is an affluent, indulgent, worldly church has little interest in the return of the Lord. The church's great hope is the arrival of Jesus Christ when he comes to bless his people with his presence. That glorious truth appears in more than 500 verses throughout the Bible. I was part of the Calvary movement for several years. The Calvary Chapel movement, one of its great strengths, uh, they preach often of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that he is coming that he's going to redeem his bride. And the reason this allows someone like Ryan or someone like yourself to suffer well is because the day of the Lord is coming. What is five years of suffering compared to eternity? What is 10 years of suffering compared to eternity? What is death compared to eternal life? See, if you don't have the perspective of eternity, then your current suffering, well, you'll be absorbed in it. You'll never get out of it. The only way to see past your suffering is to see the eternal truth that God is going to give you a new body. And many of you in the room should be like, amen. I am ready for a new body. And I've been weightlifting for a long time. My body does not respond to weightlifting like it did when I was in my 20s. I cannot wait. Not that I'll be weightlifting in heaven, I don't know. Point being is that is our great hope. 
This again shows us how temporary your trouble is, how temporary your suffering is. I know it sounds stupid, but even when it dumps snow, like for me this week, I was like, okay, after I clear out on Friday morning, I'm good. I'm done until maybe tomorrow morning. I don't have to shovel. I don't have to get all sweaty. For me, there's something about this is the part where I complain and grumble. There, there's something about going outside because it's freezing outside. I put all of these clothes on, and, and within 10 or 15 minutes, I'm sweating. I can't breathe. I'm like, it's cold out. I can't take my clothes, my clothes off here and shovel. And one morning I did. I was out on the top of my deck and my shirt off, and I was shoveling, thinking no one would see. And sure enough, there's my neighbor. Hey, Jess. I'm like, no shirt on. Hey. That's how you know I'm a local kid and I grew up here. The reality is, is that James is telling us, he says it multiple times, you have to consider this. And then he gives us an example. He gives us an example of suffering in the day of the Lord. He mentions the farmer. He says, think about the farmer. What's the farmer do? Well, the farmer depends on his crops for livelihood. That's number one. He's got a a harvest or he's not going to live. But in order to live, to redeem the harvest, what what does he got to do? He's got to plant. He's got to water. He's got to fertilize, and then he's got to just do something that is completely out of his control. He has to hope and pray that God's actually going to bring good rain, good sunshine, and then a good crop. See, what he's saying is, what's interesting about this particular example is he's sharing with the church, he's sharing with you and I, that like a farmer, you and I have an obligation to respond to God and to life in general. Everyone in this room, it is obvious you have something to do. You, you have ways that you need to serve the Lord. You have ways that you've got to provide for your family. You should work hard. You should be a hard-working individual. Whether you're male or female, we should all be working our little buns off for the glory of God, for the good of man. And then at a certain point, you just got to let it go. God, the results are in your hands. This is the practice that I have to go through every single week. I prepare a message. I dive into Scripture. I make an outline. Whether you can follow it or not, I never know. And then I get up and I share the word of God. And then at a certain point, like the farmer waits, it's up to God to shine on the heart. And the same way, he says, consider the farmer. You're going through something. Be patient. Do your part. Right? Ryan's going to have to do some rehabilitation. He's going to have to stretch. He's going to have to exercise. He's going to have to take his medication. At a certain point, though, like the farmer, there's just things that are out of your control. Let it go. Okay, Lord, it's up to you. And God's going to do one of two things. He's going to heal you. He's going to mend you. He's going to fix you. Or, or dare I say, he's going to say, time to come home. And that's not a bad thing. That's a glorious thing to go home to be in the presence of the Lord. And he says, okay, so with that said, in verse 8, he says, establish your hearts. That's your part. Make yourself strong. This definition says that it's, it, it denotes a resoluteness firm courage, an attitude of a commitment to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. Do you hear that? Brothers and sisters, you got to overcome. This word derives from the root meaning to cause to stand or to prop up. What James is urging us, those about to collapse under the weight of persecution is to prop themselves up with the hope of the Savior's return. Friends, part of Christianity is having an attitude of being willing to fight. Not to fight the enemy in, in, in people, 
not to complain against them, not to complain against God, but to say, okay, Lord, my hope is in you. You're coming back. I need to be resolute. I need to stand firm. I need to be strong. I need to overcome. And sometimes it, it can wear you thin, and you keep battling, and you keep pressing in. I'm telling you, as a pastor, it's the only thing that keeps me going on occasions. Okay, Lord, you're good. You're going to change someone's life today. You're going to bring someone to salvation today. You're going to draw someone close to you today. You're going to bring someone's Christianity from one place to another today. You're going to, you're going to show us how to love one another in a greater way. You're going to show us how to be better parents and better all of these things. But the only way that's going to happen, Lord, is if I focus on you and I love you and I worship you and I wait on you and I let you bring the crops as you see fit. I'm going to trust you, Lord. The second example he gives us is to consider the first one the first one is to consider the day of the Lord is coming. He's coming back. Second one, he says in verse 10, consider the prophets. Look back at the Old Testament. Were they persecuted? <laughs> all of them. None of them had it easy. And yet the prophets, in all of their rejection, all of their abuse, even Moses dealing with the stiff-necked people of, of Israel, all of it, God still brought tremendous good. What the Old Testament teaches us is in spite of us, God still brings goodness. I hear people who aren't Christians all the time say, the Bible promotes all these negative things in the Old Testament. Just because the Bible recorded it doesn't mean he's saying you should duplicate it. The Bible's giving us a history of the stupidity of mankind. That's kind of what the Old Testament is. And, and, and he's teaching us a better way. He's setting us up in the Old Testament for all the good stuff of the New Testament. Listen, this is what happens when you do it your own way. Right? The Bible promotes polygamy, man. No, it doesn't. It says it's going to go bad if you are a polygamist. But if you love your wife, New Testament, then you can glorify God. One wife, you can glorify God in it. So he says, go back into the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. He, he's bringing his New Testament teaching, pointing us back into the Old Testament, saying, look at those examples that you would be encouraged and strengthened in your faith about how God brought good. And then verse 11, this is number three. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Point number three is consider the Lord's blessing. Some of this is tied to number one, that he's returning, right? Consider the blessing. And, and the example, remember the first example was the farmer. and this example, he uses the prophet Job. And what's a, what happens to Job? Job endured unimaginable, unexplainable suffering. Fierce attacks of Satan, the loss of his children, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his health, the loss of his reputation, and worst of all, he felt he had lost God's presence. But at the end of Job, it says this. The example of Job encourages those suffering trials to patiently endure, realizing the Lord's purpose is to strengthen them, perfect them, and in the end, to richly bless them, in the words of the Apostle Paul, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And if you know the rest of the story, Job gets everything back in spades. This doesn't translate as well for us, but it says this in Job. The, ble the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Look at how rich he is here. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, a thousand female donkeys, and he had seven sons and three daughters, and then he names them in a way that glorifies God. Now, all that to be said in the in the Bible to talk about thousands of sheep, that thousand that was the way to talk about wealth. They didn't have dollar bills; they had donkeys. 
And, and what he's sharing with us is, it, in the end, and it's pointing towards eternity, in the end, everything that you lose in this world will be given back to you in a way that will far exceed, far outstretch anything you've ever possessed here. That's why you can't put your hope in the home you own. You can't put hope in the car you drive. You can't put hope in how much money's in your savings account. You can't put hope in the kind of clothing you wear, the kind of shoes you have, the kind of snowblower you own. You can't put hope in any of those things because none of those things are going to fulfill you. We know that, number one. And number two, all of those things are going to pale in comparison to what you'll receive in the glory of heaven. Consider the blessings that God gives you. You should consider